Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and we're going to continue Guy Talk, which I can't be any happier about because I have Jeff Verdorn and Dr. Greg Borgon in studio as my power panel. So questions today need to come to my email address, which is bill at myfaithradio.com. Bill at myfaithradio.com. Gentlemen, welcome back to Hour 2. Good to be here. Good to be here. Uh, You didn't go anywhere, so... (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for staying. All right. Here's a a question I set up right before we started this hour, and it comes from Judges chapter 19, verse 21. And the listener uh, was saying, I'm disturbed by the story and how it begins. Why was it acceptable for the Levite to throw his concubine out to the men outside the door, knowing that harm would be done to her? So I think the premise of the question is that somehow because this story is in the Bible, it's acceptable, the questioner says, to God. Um, I think this passage is just an historical narrative of what happened. There's, I, I, I kind of reviewed it during the break. There's no place that God says that this is right or acceptable to him. It's just what happened. So there's many things in Scripture that we could spend the next 30 minutes going through lots of things in the Scripture that are in the Bible, but aren't acceptable to God. I mean, I just went off the top of my head. Rahab lies in order to save spies, but God is a God of truth. And somehow some actually teach that, well, she did the right thing. I don't know that it's ever right to to lie when God is a God of truth. Um, so there's lots of things in scripture that are described that aren't necessarily accepted by, by God just because they're in scripture. And, and you know, it, I appreciate the frankness of Scripture because it really, as we talked about a little earlier, it tells it exactly like it is. We can see the gradations of sin and the consequences that follow it and that flow from it. And so I I agree with you wholeheartedly. Just because it's in the Bible, this story is in the Bible, it isn't sanctified by the Bible. It's just a description, a historical description of exactly what happened. So it's not a matter of condoning it, accepting it, embracing it. It's what happened, and that's what's being mm-hmm. described. Nice. All right. I want to give uh, Dr. Greg Borgon a little shout-out here. Um, Jeannie said, I grew up Catholic, and I, and I say double ditto to what Greg had just expressed. When I first came into my saving knowledge of Christ, I was resentful but came to appreciate my Catholic school upbringing for their thorough reverence for God um, I could go on and on, but the reason I came in from my gardens just now was to express my deep gratitude to all of you for the incredibly harmony and compliment you gentlemen are to one another as you edify your audience by your godly conduct and well-rooted knowledge. Thank you. Well, How thank nice you. is that? Yeah, that's oh, that my. very nice email. Thank She's you gardening so much. and listening to Guy Talk. And listening to Guy Talk and came in from her garden to oh. type out that message for us. Wonderful. That's really, really nice. I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, having said that, let's go back to this discussion because Michael said over this saying, this is not an answer, but it may be helpful. The Roman Catholic's understanding of righteousness, it would be unrighteous for a 
holy God to forgive sin without a demonstration of contrition. Mm. And some Roman Catholics that have more doctrinal literacy would say, we do not worship Mary, we venerate her. Well, those are really two separate issues. Let me just address the first issue. Um, the fact of the matter is that there needs to be fruit befitting repentance. I was talking to one of my grandsons the other day, and I said, you know, when you were younger and you came to me, and this is how you conveyed your, your sorrow. You said, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I said, I knew you weren't. <laughs> I could tell it in your tone of voice. And so what I want to see, son, is some evidence that you're serious about this. And so, consequently, when Scripture says fruit befitting repentance, I think that's what the, the, the person is, is really referring to, that there must be some evidence of the real uh, sense of acknowledging uh, the sin in your life and the broken relationship and with whatever is in your means to do all you can uh, to, re- to repair that. There has to be some sense of evidence of befitting repentance. I think that's First John one nine says if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. I think that is that that understanding a person coming to God. I think that's a salvation verse first and foremost. By the way, that when we recognize that we're sinful before a holy God and we confess our sin to Him, when we when we understand that, that's basically saying a deep, "I'm sorry, Lord, I'm sinful before You." He is faithful to, and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. That's the salvation that we were talking about actually in, in the first hour. As it relates to Mary, it's, it, the kind of the why or why is she, because she is. Pr- prayers are said to Mary in the Catholic Church. Um, I just got back from Europe and, and toured a number of Catholic Church. And I can tell you, Mary is, is uh, elevated to a position of worship often in, in physical form in these churches. And knowing a little bit about Catholic Catholic doctrine, I know that the idea generally is that we can go to Mary and petition Mary, who is the mother of God, and Christ is not going to resist his mother. So you kind of go through Mary in order to get to Jesus, who's going to get to God. And as we talked about before the break, no, no, no. We can come before his throne of grace with confidence because Christ is our mediator. That's right. All right, gentlemen, Jeff Verdorn, Dr. Greg Borgon are my power panel today. Uh, here's a question. Uh, in biblical times, uh, what were considered idols? Biblical times. You know, we're supposed not to have any idols, but what were they worshiping back then, these little Well, many, images? many gods, in, yeah. depending on, on where you're at, oftentimes expressed in physical form. There's a really fun story, and I think it's in Isaiah where it says, some of you uh, uh, cut some wood— and with some of it, you carve an idol, and with the rest of it, you cook your food. And then you turn around and bow down to this idol that you just made. How silly, God says, would you <laughs> worship this thing that you just used most of it to cook your food with? Look, there's one God, and he's a living God, and, and he lives in heaven, and he loves us all. The world is full of idols. In the end, it doesn't matter if you've made an idol uh, physically to represent the idol that you're worshiping. In the end, it's a heart thing, right? What are you worshiping? What do you believe has power in this world for your salvation? 
Who do you petition when you need uh, healing or health or or uh, you're anxious and who do you trust? That's God. Nothing else even comes close. So uh, an idol can be many things. Typically in the Old Testament, idols were false gods, many gods, often represented in a physical form. Yeah, and in today's day and age, it's a lot more subtle than that hmm. because you can make yourself an idol. When you put yourself in the seat of authority over uh, the authority of God's Word, over the uh, authority of Jesus Christ in your life, over the Holy Spirit, when you put yourself in that position of authority over what you believe and what you value, you have just set yourself up as a God. And so there's lots of ways to do that. It doesn't have to be a physical manifestation of something made of rock or wood or silver or gold or whatever. Um, you can make yourself that idol. When you set yourself apart and feel that you're the single arbitrator of what is right or wrong, you just made yourself an idol. I found the passage just to follow up on the thing. Isaiah 44 and right around verse 15 uh, is this this story of the man who takes some wood and cooks his food with some and carves an idol with the rest and bows down to it and gives thanks to it. So. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. All right. If you have a question, uh, please send it over by email. My email address is bill at myfaithradio.com. Bill at myfaithradio.com. All right. How would you respond if someone said, I'm not going to believe in God unless he performs like some kind of miracle in, in front of me? I want some, I want some proof. You know, there's... I've had several conversations with people. It's like, well, why doesn't God make himself plain? <laughs> and it's like, you read the passage from Romans 1 in the first hour. God mm-hmm. has yep. made himself plain. His glory is declared through his creation, first of all, right? So that man is without excuse. Look, man should open their eyes up, seek the created world around them, and know there is a creator. Just as if you were to look at at a painting on a wall, and you know inherently there's a painter. So too, God says that when we look at creation, we should know there's a God. But he's also revealed himself through his word, right? And if you're willing to read his word, he will reveal himself to you. But most of all, he revealed himself through his son. I mean, what do you want? God stepped out of heaven, came to earth as a man. He, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he died and rose again. Um, That's pretty significant proof that there is a God. Yeah, and who are we, as as arrogant to me as it seems, to set up an arbitrary set of rules that God has to satisfy before I'll capitulate Hmm. and bend my knee and receive him as Savior and Lord in our life? And so we set ourselves up as this arbitrator. And it says in Scripture that it doesn't matter what sign I give you, you still won't believe. You know, just before the the show today, I we were talking out in in the green room. I guess you'd call that the mm-hmm. green room. Um, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Great Divorce, is all about this village of people who um, get in line to take a bus, driven by Christ, by the way. They don't know it's Christ, to the edge of a new land. Now, the village they come from, as we find out later, is hell. And the new land is heaven. And they're given this one-time opportunity to cross over. They're visited by people they knew in a previous life who are followers of Jesus Christ. 
And everyone but one refuses the invitation. In other words, they'd rather live in the brokenness of their own life because it's something that they know than to give that up and lay it at the foot of the cross and receive back their true identity. They'd rather live in the chaos of their own. And we have this repeated over and over again. That's the arrogance of sin and what it does to you. So not only one crossed over, the rest of them rather live in the squalor of their own existence. Mm. All right, we'll take a break. We come back, lots more guide talk, a little extended version today plus. So we're going to spend the rest of the hour answering your questions. Send your questions to bill at myfaithradio.com. Also, if you have a prayer request, I would love to be, be praying for you. So you can send that prayer request to the same place, bill at myfaithradio.com. I go to bed early and I get up really early. So uh, I love to pray in the middle of the night, which is when I get up to pray. So bill at myfaithradio.com. Let me know how I can love and serve you, and I will uh, do my best um, to pray for you regularly. So send it over. We'll be right back. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at myfaithradio.com. We're back with Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, Jeff Verdorn, Dr. Greg Borgon, my power panel today. If you have a question, email it, please, bill at myfaithradio.com. Gentlemen, what does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? Greg, I'm looking at you okay. as you are a professor, adjunct professor, and you have like, what, two PhDs? Yeah, I have two doctorates. Oh, excuse us. All right. <laughs> Doctor, doctor. Should we address? <laughs> well, my you friend calls doctor? me paradox. Paradox. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, when it talks about worshiping in, in spirit and truth, that worship of God manifests itself in an understanding, from a limited point of view, but also from the um, direction and teaching of the Holy Spirit, a God that is real, and. Uh, Worshiping him in spirit simply means that we understand that God existed before we ever were, and that we, if we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, we will be with him again, but we're, we're worshiping him in spirit. It does manifest itself, obviously, in overt behavior that either brings glory and honor to God or dishonor and shame. That's the evidence of, of the power of our spiritual worship of him. And then to worship him in truth, not a lie. It says in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, if you are my disciples, there's the conditional clause, if you are my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But the condition is being a disciple of God, which means that you begin your journey by worshiping God in spirit, which exposes you uh, to truth, and then you live your life in accordance with truth. Yeah, I'm going to go to... 
where this phrase appears in Scripture. Um, John chapter 4 is this wonderful scene of Jesus um, at the well with a Samaritan woman. Uh, there's a whole background there that he probably shouldn't have been even talking to a Samaritan, let alone a woman. And uh, we know the story that uh, Jesus begins to tell her things about her life. And she says this, so I want to read a couple of the passages from this account. She says, Sir, Jesus, I can see that you are a prophet. Uh, there's an understatement, by the way. Yeah. All right. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. That's at the temple. So there was this whole idea that the true Jews worshiped God in a location, a physical location called the temple where they brought sacrifices and the whole sacrificial system. We were talking about this last hour a little bit, and that was how you worshiped God. But Jesus says, believe me, a time is coming that you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Here's the point. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Um, he's saying there's a new way coming. What you just described, the spirit and the truth, is how we now worship. We don't need to worship God on a mountain. We don't need to worship God in a temple. He doesn't dwell in temples built by human hands anyway, Scripture says, but we worship in spirit and in truth. And it really talks about the fact that he's no He's, he's no longer confined, even in your own mind, and that's, that was the wrong conception at that time, confined by walls or a building or a location, that you can worship him wherever you are because we worship him in spirit, and the worship that honors him is worshiping him from a position of truth. Mm. You know, I, I think there's some Christians that still fall under this kind of notion of God that I'm going to worship God in in a church building, mm-hmm. right? And and that's where you go to worship God. And then I go live my life out in the world. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not how it, it works. Yeah, it's called the sacred-secular divide. Um, again, Francis Schaeffer uh, talked about it as well. He says that people live their lives in two stories. One story is where we do all of our holy things, where we pray and we worship and we do all those things. And then the six days following that, where it's in the second story, it's in the world, and the two never meet. And it says that Jesus is going to be in all for all. So there should be no divide between the sacred and the secular. All right, my brother Matt would like to know if we are saved by God's grace alone, once and for all, by Christ's righteousness, how does daily repentance and confession fit into this? Well, that's, that's a great question. Greg, I'm looking your direction. That's a great question because, first of all, remember we talked about just in a, a two segments ago the, the difference between positional uh, forgiveness and relational forgiveness. When we come to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, it's to establish a relationship with the Creator through the finished work of Jesus at the cross, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So now we establish the relationship. But as we live our life, because we're still dealing with the residual patterns of our existence before we came to Christ. In other words, we built up habits and the way we think and the way we react and the way we live life that needs to be sanctified, to use a theological term. That's what it means about working out your own salvation, allowing the Spirit of God to eradicate those things incrementally uh, uh, from your life. So that requires us repeatedly to confess sin that breaks our relationship. In other words, 
we no longer have to establish relationship. We have to restore it. Mm-hmm. And it's restored through confession. And confession for the Christian is a little bit different than confession for a person coming to Jesus for the first time. Because you're acknowledging that you're a sinner when you come to him the first time, that God provided a way for you, um, and that you need to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord to establish that relationship. Confession for the Christian is simply acknowledging somehow I've deviated from the plumb line of God's holiness. I need to acknowledge that before him to restore the fellowship that has been broken, even though the relationship is, has been established at the foot of the cross once and for all. So confession is necessary as a means of acknowledging the separation, just as we brought up the parenting thing again, where to restore the relationship with your heavenly parent, which is God himself, by confessing the sin and simply acknowledging, I did it, I blew it, Lord, I know that's not how you want me to live my life. It dishonored you, I acknowledge it. I thank you Mm. for the forgiveness that's already been provided. You know the beautiful thing, Bill, about God's forgiveness, he says six different places in Scripture that he cast our sin from us. In other words, let's take a look at, at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. He says, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no, no more. more. So we're the only ones that remember our sin. Mm-hmm. God says, mm. hey, that's been taken care of. It's buried. I remember it no more. I blot it out, he says in other places in Scripture. That's the power of God's forgiveness. And so we need to go ahead and embrace that. And we just need to fess up, quite frankly. You know, I blew it, Lord. I'm not living the way you called me to live. I have sinned against your holiness. I deviated from your standard. I acknowledge that. I accept the responsibility for it. Thank you for the forgiveness you've already given me. And I appropriate it to my life. You know, that it's amazing. Those are very powerful concepts. It's not taught enough in the church that we as Christians have been forgiven and we can just say, thank you, Lord, that you have forgiven us. It has been done. We have been washed clean. Uh, that is our new identity in Christ. We've been made a new creation. And so that, Greg, I absolutely 100% agree with that concept. You also made a distinction, which I do. I want to tell you how I normally teach on this, see what you think of this, between an unbeliever's repentance and a believer's repentance. And they are. They're totally different. I describe it in this way for, for a student to try to understand. For an unbeliever, repentance is the capital R, repentance unto salvation. For a believer, I call it a small r, to turn from the ways of this world in which you used to live to the ways of God. It's mm-hmm. kind of the idea of don't conform to the patterns of this world anymore. I've made you new. Now live it out. Yeah. So I describe it as a capital R repentance unto salvation and a small r, a believer's repentance. All right. I like that answer, Jeff. So I don't Warren. get to hear what he says well, after the break? Well, we're going to have to come back okay. after the break. Right. <laughs> I bet you're going to have a, respo- a response to that, aren't you? Yes, I am. Are you, you going to remember your response? Yes, I am. <laughs> because, you know, usually, I'm not that old, Bill. I know, but a couple of minutes passes, and then you all of a sudden you go, oh, what was I going to say? It happens to all of us. So we're going to take a break, come right back with more God Talk. One more segment of 30 minutes. Let me know what question you have. There's some great questions coming in, so... Be like anyone that has sent a question in. You send it to Bill at MyFaithRadio.com. My power panel is Jeff Verdorn and Dr. Greg Borgond. We'll be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. We are having a lot of fun today with an extended plus version of Guy Talk. So uh, we still have another 30 minutes left to go. If you have a question, you can email it over, bill at myfaithradio.com. Bill at myfaithradio.com. All right, uh, gentlemen, Jeff Verdorn, Greg Borgon are my guests. I'm fascinated by the conversation with Nicodemus. Was he trying to conceal that he wanted to go to Jesus? What would it have meant for him to become a believer? Would he have risked everything? I think John 3, if you read through the narrative, he's meeting Jesus at night. I think he was hiding. Uh, Jesus was not liked by the Jewish leadership crowd. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, to to be seen with him uh, or to follow him would have probably been dangerous, especially for a Pharisee. Um, so, yeah, I think he was trying to hide his meeting with him. And then they have this wonderful, I mean, you know, John three sixteen when he tells them that he loves the world so much and the whole idea of being born again and, and the whole interaction with Nicodemus is such a powerful uh, narrative uh, and such a great picture. It's, it's especially this idea of being born again. Um, Jesus says you have to be born again. You have to be made new. You have to have the rebirth of the spirit in order to be saved. And that truth comes solidly through on, on John in John chapter 3. The, the, is, did Nicodemus end up being saved? I think probably yes. We see at the end of the Gospel of John, we see Joseph of Arimathea take, with Nicodemus taking down, the, uh, taking down the body of Christ and putting him in the rich man's tomb. So he's still there. And so I think we can assume that he probably ended up believing in this man, Jesus Christ, as his Savior. You know, it's a wonderful thing. Um, you can come to Jesus in the dark mm. and in the light. There's not a special road. The very fact that you come to Jesus is what's important. Mm. So even though he came to him in the night, it's, it's with some degree of reservation. And he had stature, he had prominence, he had influence, he had a reputation. But he still came to Jesus to ask him those questions. It was still the conviction, I believe. You know, when it says in Scripture about the Holy Spirit, it convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so the conviction must have been so compelling to have him take that risk. But I agree with you, Jeff. I, I think in the end that he became a follower. So I just turned to John 19 where they take the body of Jesus down, right? And it says, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Excellent. All right, gentlemen. Matthew eleven twenty to 24 is the topic for the next question. And the question is, in this passage, Jesus denounces cities and compares them, notably Capernaum, to Sodom. Is he putting judgment on entire groups of people rather than individuals? Yeah, I think the the response is you you, you never con- condemn an entire city if there's an exception in the city. Obviously, uh, they wouldn't fall under God's wrath, uh, but they did not accept the miracles. They didn't not accept Jesus, and he's comparing it to the city of Sodom. Remember the story 
of uh, 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 lots that – what if – will you save the city if I can find – you know, and he starts negotiating with God, right? And the, the number of righteous people that he keeps uh, negotiating with God keeps going down. Well, if I can find 10 or if I can find 5, I can't remember the exact number that he's looking at. But in the end, God judged Sodom. The righteous, the only righteous person we know, Lot, escapes that judgment. He comes out of that judgment. And God says that that picture, uh, as well as the flood, by the way, and the judgment of the flood, are pictures of God's future judgment in which he is going to judge the lost world. Yeah, and you notice in the very last verse there, 24, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What's the distinction? They see his works. They saw the miracles that Jesus performed, and they still turned their back on him. Going back to a question that was asked earlier about, you know, the whole idea of, of, of repenting and what that really means, this right here, here, people will not be convinced the person was asking why doesn't he show them? Why doesn't he make himself available to us? Why doesn't he perform a miracle so that I, I can believe that he exists? Well, these people had the benefit of the miracles, and they still rejected him. So he's saying to them, do you understand how serious your unbelief is hmm. and what the consequences are going to be? Do you understand the seriousness of your sin and your rejection of me after I showed you who I was? And after I came to save you, and you turn your back on me? I mean, the other people have had faith and never saw me. You see me, and you've turned your back on me. Mm. I think that's the heart of that passage. And they saw God in the flesh. They saw him do miracles. They saw him raised from the grave. They saw other saints raised from the grave. And yet, uh, you know, in John, we see so often... Jesus does a teaching, he does a miracles, and it will say, some believed, but others did not. Yeah. There's always two reactions to the miracles or to the teachings of Christ. Nicely done. Jeff Verdorn, Greg Borgon are my guests. All right, uh, I'm in Genesis chapter 6, and in verse 11 it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had be, had be, become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm going to surely going to destroy both them and the earth. That's what happened. Yeah, what's, what's the question there? <laughs> is there a question there? Oh, I'm just opening it up for comment. <laughs> that happened. I know it did. Um, he says that's why he sent the flood, right? Because of the corruption of that day. Is that um, an example of God's wrath? You're wiping out the world except eight people. You know, so you there, uh, this is a, a longer discussion. The, the One of the questions that is debated is, is it the wickedness of man and his behavior that he is bringing his judgment on uh, in this flood? Or is it the corruption of mankind just before this, we have this story of the sons of God seeing the daughters of men, and they came down and had children with them. Uh, this passage is highly debated. There is a narrative that says these are fallen angels that are having relations with human women and having what Scripture describes as the Nephilim or the Nephilim. And these Nephilim was the corruption of human flesh 
that some believe is what God was really taking out at the time of the flood. Others will say, no, it's the wickedness of mankind, meaning the behavior and the wickedness, the sinfulness of mankind. And that's why he started anew, if you will, with Noah and his children. Uh, But which leaves one question, which is debated. Well, isn't there wickedness after the flood as well? Did he end wickedness in the world? And the answer is, of course not. He didn't end wickedness, but potentially ended this corruption of the flesh. Um, this gets into the Nephilim. This is We only have a couple of verses here, so right. we really don't know. In the end, we know what happened. God sent a flood. He destroyed the world. He sent a rainbow in the sky to say it'll never happen again. And he started anew with Noah and his children. And all of us, by the way, every single person on the planet is a descendant of Noah. There's one race on this planet. It's called the human race. And every single person was is made in the image of God. You know, sin doesn't um, hang out in a, in a cloud that all of a sudden when you're under it, you're permeated by it. it it's not a virus <laughs> that it requires a created host, first manifesting itself in fallen angels, ultimately manifesting itself in our, uh, our parents, Adam and Eve, that it takes a required host. So we don't know in retrospect the degree to which sin permeated um, every aspect of humanity at that time, requiring God to judge it, knowing full well the devastation that it would possibly create. We can't see into the future. God can. We can't see into the past. God did. And so that's what trust and belief is today. I mean, the Greek word for, for, for belief is trust and rely on and cling to, pasteo. So we have to trust that God knew what he was doing, and the wrath was against the sin that was so um, devastating and so pervasive in that day and age, and only he could see into the future what that was going to look like and knew that that, that's what was going to be uh, required. Does that kind of sin exist today? Of course it does, but we're seeing the depravity get more depraved, the extensiveness of sin more pervasive. Um, the consequences of sin more dramatic, that's why there's going to be a final judgment. Mm-hmm. All right. It's also in Genesis 6, 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Yeah, I don't, the, the Hebrew word there, I can't remember what it is, but I've, I've looked at this. It doesn't mean that God went, oh, I wish I wouldn't have wouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. He knew this was going to happen. If he knows the end from the beginning, it, nothing surprises God. And he knew that this day would come. Uh, the Hebrew word indicates that I, I'm, I'm sorry for mankind that this is where this ended up, right? That's This was not God's design. God designed a perfect garden. Yeah, I'm sorry you made these choices. Yes, exactly. All right. It is... Uh Time for a little bit more guy talk and or guys who talk. So we've got a few more minutes. Let me know what questions you have. You can uh, email them to me, bill at myfaithradio.com, bill at myfaithradio.com. Um, in, when they're asking, the, dis- the disciples are asking Jesus, you know, where are you going? And, and he said, I prepared many, in my father's house, there's many mansions. Have we come to understand that, that like we're finally going to get a really decked out crib? In 
I mean, do do a lot of people go that because I, I think the the Greek word for mansion is room. It's it's oikio or something like that. I, I should have checked my Greek, but <laughs> but seriously, but it it's, has more to do with fellowship. I don't care if I'm in a cardboard box as long as Jesus is there, right? Well, I think the new world is going to be Ireland anyway. But I, I, well, aside that's, from you're that. so biased. <laughs> Aside from that, when it talks about that, you've got to understand, here we have infinite God trying to communicate to his finite creatures uh, the glory of this new abode that he's created for us. So he uses terminology that we would understand. Um, Are you going to have an apartment, Bill, a crib, or are you going to be in the penthouse, or are you going to be on the bottom floor? It talks about a new Jerusalem that's 1,400 square miles by 1,400 square miles by 1,400 square miles. That's a lot of apartments. So (laughs) the fact of the matter is I think that the language is being used that communicates some sense of of, uh, substance of, of our existence, that we're not going to be floating around on a on a cloud playing a harp that there's going to be an abode for us, there's going to be a new heavens, as Jeff has said, a new earth, and and Jerusalem is going to be its capital. So I don't know what that's going to look like. Um, I, I don't know, but I do know it's going to be physical. That's what I think is, is being described here. Mm-hmm. If you read through that description of that new Jerusalem, the foundations are precious stones, the gates are pearls. The 12 yeah. gates are pearls. The streets are, gold. are made of gold. Yeah. Um, this sounds like a pretty amazing mansion does, to me. Yeah. And yeah. you're right. The, look, the Lord is our portion and he is our reward. And uh, if eternal life was in a cardboard box, it would be infinitely better than this life because we'll be with the creator of all things. But it is an amazing inheritance, and I think the place that he goes and prepares, which is described in this new Jerusalem, is going to be beyond west. As Paul says to the Corinthians, the eye has not seen, nor the ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man the wonders that God has in store for us. It's going to be better than what you can even imagine. Amen. All right, we'll take one last break, and we'll be back with more God Talk. Dr. Greg Borgon, Jeff Verdorn. It's my power panel today. Great questions coming in. Thank you for sending them over today via email, bill at myfaithradio.com. Also, if you have a prayer request, send it to me as well, because I get up early, like really early, and I can pray for you. um, (laughs) Or again, I was going to go give you the phone number, bill at myfaithradio.com. Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. We are in hour two of God Talk, and Greg Borgon just asked me when the pizza was going to be delivered, <laughs> and boy, does he not know the truth. <laughs> so I won't be set new. free? He's new ex- to God Talk. Keep your expectations yeah. low. <laughs> All right, uh, here's a question. How do you forgive yourself after having led a gay life for years? First of all, let me, before I let one of you answer... 
I think you could also say, how do you forgive yourself after having led a promiscuous heterosexual yep. life for years? Whatever the behavior is, the, the, the question is the same, right? To start, we need to appropriate God's forgiveness. You need to understand that God's forgiveness, we talked about this in the first hour, is a done deal. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, there's this passage, and I, I, I would like to just read it. It says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I'm guessing that pretty much everybody who's listening to this can find themselves in there someplace, right? And he says, and if that's you, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. But the passage doesn't stop there, thank goodness. For it says this, and that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. (laughs) The moment you believe Mm -hmm. and are saved, you are washed clean. You are a new creation. You are born of the Spirit. You're redeemed, justified, made holy, forgiven completely by God. He no longer counts your sins against you. They've been separated as far as the east is from the west, and he says he remembers them no more. That's you. If God has forgiven you, tell me why you're not forgiving yourself. Another aspect of this um, is the fact that, you know, I, I get asked this question all the time. Well, if I'm saved, why why do I keep sinning? Why, why am I still having problems in these areas, which were exemplified by the the last uh, person who, who sent in the email to Bill? Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is, as we've talked briefly uh, in a couple of sessions ago, the fact is, is that when we live apart from God, we build up these patterns of behavior, these ways of thinking, the ways of navigating life, situational lifestyles we embraced just to make it from point A to B. Those patterns are in scouts. They're a part of the, the woof and fabric of our, of our very soul. Then we had no power over them prior to Christ. And what was broken at the cross was the power. But those residual patterns follow us into our relationship that need to be removed incrementally through God's grace, through confession and through commitment and through focus on living a, a holy life. And gradually... We become like Christ. We're able to have the victory that we that eluded us. But right now, we're struggling with some of these patterns, these etched patterns. If you if you're older and you you have these these um, records, it's these patterns that are etched. Well, God has built you a new record. There are new etchings. I like that. I think that's what Romans says: Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If you if someone is struggling with self-forgiveness, I think a great place to start is God's word and read all the passages that God has forgiven you and believe it. Yeah. All right, when was the last time someone asked your forgiveness that wasn't a family member? Hmm. I'm I'm just, you know, we're in the month of June, we're going to be talking about forgiveness, and we're going to talk about when you need to go ask someone for forgiveness. That's, I think, the direction we're going, if I have that right. And I can sit and think of who in my life 
would I need to go and say, would you forgive me? And I'm praying about it, obviously, and I hope we all do. But I was thinking, when is the last time someone came to me that wasn't a family member and just said, hey, I need to apologize for something? Huh. I just, I can't think of This really gets close to home for me. Why, Greg? Um, my ex-son-in-law um, lived a life of drugs and abuse before all four of my grandsons were born. My daughter was pregnant with the fourth grandson when he abandoned the family. I'm, by the way, I have his permission to talk about this. And I had these visions of what I wanted to do to him if I ever saw him again. Sometimes it was to visit him with a Bible. The other time, quite frankly and honestly, with a baseball bat. I mean, I felt the pain of what the terrible things that happened to my family as a result of him. And so years passed. He ultimately rededicated his life to the Lord. But I wasn't ready to forgive him yet. My wife said, honey, we've left the battlefield. You're still surveying the damage because you see us as your protector. And she was right. Well, one day I'd been really heavy into the word, talking about the washing of the word. And my grandson sends me a text saying that my other grandson invited his ex, um, his father, his, his, his birth father to his graduation. My wife is sitting next to me. And I said to and sent the text to my grandson, tell him that he's welcome in my home. My wife's jaw dropped. My grandson started to cry on the phone because he called me up right away because nobody expected it. And I said, it's time to forgive. I had told my ex-son-in-law that when he ever turned his back or turned back to Christ again, I'd be waiting with a ring and a robe. So... He came to the graduation, and then there was this confrontation. I was gone for the day working. He knew he had to talk with me. We went down into my office, and he asked my forgiveness and acknowledged all that he contributed to the chaos he brought into the family. I didn't say a word to him. I got up. I went up to the living room, and I got a box. I brought it down. I had him open the box, and in the box was a ring and a robe that I had purchased. And he just wept. And I said, you were a prodigal. But I never stopped loving you as a son. And finally, I was able to forgive him. That was after 12 years. I'm ashamed that I didn't do it earlier. But God kept working on me through his word. And it was, we just were getting ready to leave to celebrate our 50th anniversary in Ireland three days before that, after that, and the weight of the world lifted off my shoulders. But it took that long for me, and I, I personally know the power of forgiveness. Follow that, Jeff. Mm. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, uh, that, I, was, that was beautiful. That's a perfect picture of, of forgiveness. Mm. Great story. Should have happened earlier. Wow. I have very little to say after that. Yeah. Yeah, and I still have a couple of, couple of minutes left to go over the show. <laughs> you, you ha- well, you know, we have been forgiven much. Yeah. So the principle is we should be forgiving. Look, the forgiven should be the most forgiving people on this planet, right? You know, the parable of the debtor. Uh, a man who owes a great debt is forgiven, and then he, the, in the parable, and 
in Matthew, he turns around and doesn't forgive the others um, who owes a smaller debt. Uh, every person on the planet owns a de- owes a debt to God for our sin. And for those of us who have received his forgiveness, we should be forgiving of the relative smaller debts that others have committed against us. So, mm-hmm. But I, you, you can't beat that story. That is just a powerful story of forgiveness. So thank you. But just for the audience information, that ring of the robe deals, it, it actually reverts back to the story in the Bible about the prodigal son. And I had purchased that. After I had told my grandson he's welcome in my home, first thing I did was purchase it. How'd you know he? How'd you? Why did you bring it there that night? How, did you know he was going to ask for forgiveness? That yeah, I knew he was coming to reconcile. He he never felt that he and I were ever going to reconcile wow. ever. But when I invited him to his home, he was absolutely shocked, and he knew that we would have a discussion. But he wasn't expecting the ring and robe mm. that. That just powerful, my... powerful, powerful. Yeah. Thank you very much, Greg Borgon and Jeff Verdorn, for a very um, action-filled two hours of Guy Talk. I got to say, this has been fun. Yeah, it's been Always great. is. It's always fun. I love Guy Talk. I do, too. A lot of fun. <laughs> yep. From what, I, from what I hear, a lot of people like it as well. So that is all the show we have for today. Thank you again for tuning in, and thank you for the questions and the prayer requests. I will get on that as early as the middle of the night, early tomorrow morning. And I'm looking forward to spending uh, more time with you tomorrow. If you missed any of today's show, I always encourage you to go to faithmyfaithradio.com. You can check out the, the podcast, which is under the Afternoons with Bill show page. So thank you. God bless you. Have a wonderful evening, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.